Welcome to the Heart of Leaders podcast, where each week we'll be exploring the frontiers of leadership with those who lead from the heart and put their people first, knowing that ultimately all team accomplishments are driven by people. They know that when they take care of their people, their people will take care of customers, lower costs, and drive customer loyalty and company profitability. These leaders believe that for most companies, culture trumps strategy. And culture starts with how you treat your people and how they treat each other. I'm your host, Rick Barrera, head of faculty for the Heart of Leaders training program in Denver, Colorado, where we teach extraordinary leaders how to build and lead high-performance teams who can consistently deliver exceptional results. We're back today to discuss heart-led leadership with Jim Reuter, CEO of First Bank, on the Heart of Leaders podcast. I'm your host, Rick Barrera, head of faculty for the Heart of Leaders training program. Jim was responsible for leading the fastest-growing part of the bank over the past five years, the First Bank online banking team. Jim, since you were born a heart-led leader and now have the official title of CEO to go with it, tell us what heart-led leadership means to you. Sure, Rick. Um, to me, it's being authentic and real, um, you know, letting others see that you're, you're human and no different than, than they are. Um, to me, when you combine that with treating others the same way you'd want to be treated, it, it's what makes it work. Some would describe it as being vulnerable. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about that. In fact, I met with someone the other day and they said, you know, I'm, I've, I have a coach and he's teaching me to be vulnerable. And I've kind of decided I don't like that term because I think it conjures up an image that you, you have to you know, show a weakness or share something deeply personal. And to me, that only captures one aspect of being a human being. To me, being authentic and real means letting people have a window into the highs, mediums, and lows of, of your life and, and of your day. And being a heart-led leader means letting others see the real you and in turn embracing the real version of them. It builds a level of trust you can't get any other way. So... How important do you believe leadership is going to be in the banking business as you face an onslaught of new and different competitors from Silicon Valley and around the world? You know, I think it's going to be extremely important because we're going to, as an industry, have to make significant changes to our model, which means the way we've been doing business, some of it will have to end and there'll be new ways. And that means you have to take your workforce and transition them from the old to the new. And that means change, which uh, makes people uncomfortable. I mean, just to tell you how it, you know, the real facts of what's happening in our business, we open 25% of our new accounts online now. And if I look at our 120 branches, um, you have to add up the bottom 53 branches. If you start with the branch that opens the least number of new accounts and work your way up, you add up the bottom 53 to equal what we open online each month. So it's, it's quite a transformation. And you know, changing where we're going to go and getting everybody to buy in, I think you'll have to to be a good leader to make that happen. So uh, I, I got to ask a, a specific here. So when you open a, an account online, don't you, I mean, like in, in California where I live, you, you have to show your driver's license and, you know, all kinds of things. How do you do that online? How do you know it's really me? Yeah, we work with uh, a few different databases and we basically in the online application ask you some out of wallet questions, we call them. Uh, about your past and maybe where you lived and cars you owned and loans you had and different things. 
um, that uh, help us determine you are who you say you are. And if we have any doubt, we will ask the person to come into the branch to show their identification. But we're up to about 80% of those online account applications. Uh, they finish the process and they have immediate access to their account that opened as part of the online effort and they can log into online banking and see it right away. That's pretty slick. Yeah, we're actually working on mobile optimizing it because we're seeing 40% of those applications are being initiated on a smartphone. So we're trying to get it to where you take a picture of your driver's license. We'd pre-populate everything. And by taking that picture, we've also gotten some data to tap into some databases to verify the authenticity of your application. So it saves you keystrokes and gives us some additional ability to identify who you are. So what do you believe are the greatest threats facing you and First Bank currently? Well, we have new competitors that uh, are emerging, such as um, you know PayPal and their, their services, as well as Venmo, their person-to-person payment service that they own. Um, but you know, also Google has gotten into the payments business, so has Apple. And the thing that's concerning about those competitors is they have other ways they will monetize the data. So you know, we as a bank, we have your data, but we use it to process your transactions and do things. And we may serve you up some financial management advice and and cross sell some products uh, to uh, you know improve your money management or help you save for your goals, but. If you're Google and you have that information, you're also selling advertising and clicks and, and things to retailers. And you can see where they, you know, where a person's looking online for something, but unless they complete that purchase online, Google has no way to close the loop to show a retailer what the true value of paying them for an ad was. Well, if they're in the payment stream, they now have some information to close that loop. And so, where where I'm headed with this is the risk is Google has additional revenue streams around that data we don't have available. So one of my concerns is they give away some parts of the business that today we charge for because they have another way to make money on that data. So that's one is new competitors. The other ones were in an IT arms race with large banks. You know, we're a mid-sized bank and I'm competing with Chase who has 46,000 employees in IT. I have four. (laughs) So, you have how many? Yeah, I have 400. We have 2,600 employees in total. So I feel like, you know, some uh, really small country competing with the U.S. in an arms race. And uh, so w- as a result, we have to be very surgical as to how we make investments. But if we're going to compete with Chase, which we are, we have to be on par. And then the last one's brand disintermediation. As people use Apple Pay and these other payment mechanisms, they're not saying they're paying with First Bank, they're paying with Apple Pay. So you lose some uh, brand recognition as uh, people use mobile wallets and some other things. You know, Starbucks, you pay with your Starbucks app, even though your First Bank credit card's reloading that Starbucks app, you're not pulling out your First Bank card and being reminded of who your bank is when you go into Starbucks, you're pulling out your Starbucks app. So right. um, that's, that's something new as well. So what's your plan to deal with all those fascinating threats? Well, the first is to engage the team in the challenge and get everybody as nervous about it as I am. Um, so, <laughs> well, paranoia is good for the group. Exactly. Uh, you know, I think transparency is key. You know, I could sit here and and uh, have worries and concerns and not share them for fear that, 
well, wow, you know, how will I lead if people see I'm nervous or worried about something? But I sit there and say, well, um, if I if I want to get the collective power of the team, they need to understand the challenge. So it's the way you message it, though. You have to make everybody aware, but you have to also say, I think we can win this. But if we're going to win this, we all have to come up with ideas and, and uh, chip in. The other way to deal with these threats to me is to be at the table. And by that, uh, I mean, being out in the industry, connected, talking to financial technology companies, talking to other bankers, uh, because a lot of ideas are, are being kicked around. And if you're at the table, you know where things are headed and you can then uh, plan accordingly. Um, being surgical with our investments, because I can't compete with 46,000 IT employees at Chase. So I have to be very calculated uh, where we're going to do our R&D work. And then creating a culture of what I call quick to fail. Um, if we're going to advance technology efforts, we're going to have to try some things and some of those won't work. So how can we do a minimum viable product, test it, and uh, find out whether it's going to work or not? And we've done that with a few different things. And uh, it creates a, a culture of innovation, which is part of how we're going to deal with those threats as well. So your bank has transitioned from a purely brick-and-mortar bank to a really powerhouse online brand. And I know you led up that online brand and the IT team for many years. What was that like? You know, it's, it's very fun. And uh, I think, Rick, you brought this up actually in one of the Heart-Led Leader programs. But um, I really embraced the idea of creating the company within the company to kill the company. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so early on, uh, we never we never got worried about that if we did something really well online, it was going to decrease traffic at the branch, even though we had a significant investment in branches. In fact, we've closed 42 branches in the last 10 years. Because to me, if you sit around and you have a, a protectionist attitude, you're, you're for sure going to lose. And so early on, we embraced the sea change that we saw coming. And we, we were able to take a long view because we're privately held. So even though we hadn't made a decision to start thinning our branch network um, to pay for the technology, we basically, you know, dug in and, and spent some money on IT that probably if we'd have had the answer to Wall Street for the next quarter, that might have been difficult to do. But we had a long view and that paid off. The other thing is, is our IT is in-house so we can control our own destiny. There's a challenge. You have to attract and hire the best and brightest in the business, but uh, we've been able to do that. And then you know, last but not least, you know, having that courage to create the company within the company to kill it, but then also to have the courage to shift your investments. You know, we made some tough decisions as a company to close 42 branches because uh, eventually it's, it's a zero-sum game. You do have to uh, balance the budget, um, but we did that with transparency, and uh, uh, nobody was laid off. They were redeployed, retrained into other jobs, and uh, in the end, uh, we showed you can transition the company, you can create that energy, and uh, if you do it right, people get even more excited about where you're going next. Yeah, that's great. So as a heart-led leader, how do you handle the gut-wrenching change required of your people, that kind of a transition? Well, if you go back to the very start of our conversation here today, you start with what would you want if you were working at a branch or in a part of our business that's being eliminated or going to be downsized. You'd want transparency. And uh, 
I think it was 14, 15 years ago, I was involved with a project where we went to a, an imaging system that we would no longer need a department that we called the film department. And uh, I remember sitting down uh, with leadership of the bank at that time, and we decided, well, let's tell them where we're going to be a year from now to, you know, probably it was almost 18 months before we would be to where their jobs would be eliminated and work with them on getting them retrained. And um, we knew the risk of doing that was that people wouldn't, you know, maybe they wouldn't even stay around to finish the work until we, we eliminated the, the work in that department. But we decided if we were in their shoes, we'd want to know what was coming and we'd want to have a landing place. So we worked on that. And, you know, when I watch how that played out, um, the buy-in and support we got, we had folks that stayed there till the very end and they knew that we were going to retrain them and some that left earlier because they were too nervous about it. But I, I just think transparency and treating others the way you want to be treated, it gets rid of the gut-wrenching part because everybody knows where you're headed and knows why. We're fortunate. We're a growth company, so people weren't laid off, but they were redeployed. We had a few people retire because they're like, you know, this is what I really like to do, and I think I'm at the end of of the road, and so I'm going to retire. But I think that upfront communication is really how you make it happen. So I'm sure our listeners would love to hear the story of Zell, how First Bank got involved and why this is such a big deal. Yeah, so Zell is really the industry's answer to Venmo, um, which if your listeners are familiar, you know, Venmo is the, the dominant person-to-person payment system that you know, largely millennials used initially, and then like a lot of things, it moves to other generations as, as the millennials uh, ask their parents to Venmo them or whatever the case may be. But essentially using your phone to move money from one friend to another, and all you have to get from that person is either their email address or cell phone number. Well, as a banking industry, here we are sitting with all these networks and capabilities, but we weren't playing nice with each other and working together because we're competitors. Um, you know, and there's antitrust issues you have to consider. So certainly we don't work together on the pricing and things like that, but we can work together on the networks and creating uh, a better payment movement capability, much like if you think back to probably when Visa and MasterCard were started. So um, we were there were three large banks that were building it. It was Chase, Wells Fargo, and Bank of America. And to show you the power of networking and being in the community, literally as a result of a steak dinner and a bottle of wine with the CEO of, of uh, what was the predecessor of Zell. Um, I talked my way into getting First Bank into the start of that network. And uh, we're really glad we're there because um, we are moving millions of dollars. And I think last month was 60,000 Zell transactions, and it's still in its infancy. And uh, your listeners are going to see a lot of marketing and a lot of publicity around this product offering uh, towards the end of the year, first part of next year, because it's the industry's answer to uh, taking back the person-to-person payment space from Venmo. Yeah, well, it, I love it. I'm using it. I was thrilled when, when it came out because uh, my my son banks at a different bank. And, uh, you know, as you might guess, he's always asking me for money, and then, you know, he wants me to Venmo or PayPal or do something and you know there's fees involved and all that so and I, I didn't like Venmo because it posts it online every time you send somebody money and that that didn't work for me so I'm, I'm, I'm pretty thrilled with Zell so far. Good glad to hear it. So what are you working on now that's really fun and exciting? Well one of the things we're working on is 
is making it so you could open an account with us with your smartphone in about uh, one or two minutes time. So really mobile optimizing that experience because that's how more and more people are doing business with us. Um, you know, kind of at a high level, more leadership standpoint, I'm creating more clarity and around career paths for our team because as the business is changing, so are the career paths. And I think nothing is more motivating for someone to be able to see the road ahead of them, the potential uh, paths they can take. And so that's something that uh, working on. And then bringing the banking for good tagline to life, both internally and externally, because I really think it is our differentiator and uh, it's becoming our mantra as a company. Um, in fact, we're, you know, our mission is now banking for good for communities, customers, and employees. And so uh, getting it so that every time someone interacts with a customer, they're thinking, are we banking for good right now? Is this the best we can be? And that's that to me is very exciting because uh, when I started with the bank, we were $1 billion in assets in about 20 locations, and now we're $17 billion in 120 locations. And I want to keep that spirit of ownership and community even as we get bigger, and I think banking for good is a, a good way to accomplish that goal. You've been a best place to work six years in a row. How did that come about? What, what are you doing that's making you a best place to work? You know, I think uh, there's a number of things. One, um, we're a hire and promote from within organization. So our, our management team, every one of us started as management trainees. Uh, so I've been with the bank 30 years and it's an up or out. So, you know, we hire probably 30, 40 folks right out of school every year and three to four years in half are here half or not. A big part of that is you don't know what you want to be sometimes when you first get out of school. So some just decide banking isn't for them. But it's also, you know, we create a hard charging, uh, high energy place. But that also, to me, creates some loyalty and uh, we really rally as a team. And then all employees own stock in the company. And so that gets uh, a buy-in at a level that uh, you would otherwise never get. And then Last but not least, we really invest in them, whether it be if you were to tour our corporate headquarters. Uh, we look more like an IT company. We have a cafe. We have a fitness center. We actually have an on-site fitness instructor. We believe in, in investing in the whole person. You know, There's the obvious career part and the uh, salary paid and different things, but it's also taking care of their health and uh, being there for their family and uh, being there for their community. So I think... Uh, it's because we take a pretty holistic approach to managing, motivating, and creating a, a place that's just a good place to work. Great. So you're the first graduate of the Heart of Leaders program to be on this podcast. Would you mind sharing with our listeners how you feel about the program? Yeah, I, th I think it's a, a great program. And I think what makes it great is it's an immersion. You know, we're all so busy these days. We're pulled in a million different directions. We have these devices with us that pull us in a million different directions. And I think, you know, the reading and the, the assignments and different things, but then the experiential part of the learning, it really is an immersion that forces you to look deeply inward. And sometimes it's just to reconnect with things you already knew, which, you know, we lose those over time. But other times it, it does truly bring you some new things. I, the thing I think that was new for me is you guys forced me to be uncomfortable. And I think the, the slogan was, your goal was to get me comfortable being uncomfortable because that's when I would be more open to change. And I can tell you it has made a big difference both 
personally and professionally. I mean, my wife is even like, wow, you're ordering things off the menu that you don't even know what they are. I'm like, that'll eh, be fine. They wouldn't have it here if it didn't taste good. I don't think I'd have done that before. So uh, you, you've made me embrace being uncomfortable. So oh, good. And, uh, the sh- it really the chefs of the world things. appreciate that now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So uh, I know you're a very generous man. Tell me about your personal dedication to charity. Yeah, you know, it's um, my parents showed this when I was growing up, and so it was uh, something that just was second nature. But I've been very involved with Cerebral Palsy of Colorado and chaired their board for uh, almost five years and most recently been on the board for Special Olympics and actually just finished up my chairmanship of of that board. But um you know, the thing I enjoy most about it is, you know, there's the obvious touching lives and, and helping others. But what I've really gotten to enjoy is getting others uh, involved that were not otherwise involved with a nonprofit. I just invited a number of my good friends to our Hall of Fame luncheon for Special Olympics. And uh, one of the athletes got up there um, who has an intellectual disability, and he talked about the teamwork that uh, he's seen over the years as an athlete in Special Olympics, and he segued into, if we could have that kind of teamwork uh, in Washington, D.C. and internationally, what a difference it would make. And I got the nicest email from all my friends or series of emails that that was such an inspirational day for them, and now they're hooked into Special Olympics. So, you know, my first pursuit of all of it was what I get by giving and, and how that feels, but now... I feel like the network effect is even the more exciting part of it is to touch people's lives that aren't even connected with it by getting them involved. Yeah. All goes back to we before me. Yeah, exactly. So what's the one piece of advice that you would share with our other senior leaders who might help them through the kind of change and growth that your company's experienced? One is know your mission and know your goals and communicate them constantly. Um, You know, with 2,600 employees, uh, I've never taken for granted the importance of communication and whether that's getting in front of the group or uh, email or, you know, just can't do it enough and you can't uh, hold enough town hall meetings and different things. Be transparent about the challenges you're facing. It engages everyone in finding the solutions. Um, everybody here knows our business is switching from brick and mortar to online. And so everybody's thinking of ideas. Um, promote your critical thinkers and brokers of truth. Um, you know, even then, even when they drive you nuts because they're they're always critics and they're always second guessing things. I think they're the most valuable people to have around you. I really believe in, in you know, you're the one that taught me this, Rick. I really believe in building the business inside your business that will end your current model. I uh, the question I always ask is. Um, you know, who's going to put us out of business and can I get in their business? And uh, so that's something that I would very much encourage folks. And then don't forget the human side of every decision you make, because at the end of the day, it, it's all about leading and and uh, motivating your team. And uh, sometimes we get very focused on the bottom line and we get short sighted that if, you know, maybe if we cut the donations budget this year, that'll help us meet our overall budget. Well, that's pretty short-sighted thinking when you consider how important that is to our brand, to our customers, to our communities and employees. So keep the human side in, in mind every time you make a decision. And then don't be too hard on yourself or take yourself too seriously. That one's hard. 
if you're <laughs> yeah well you know i in my new role here um i realized i was the you, suddenly you feel you are the tip of the spear of your leadership team but the best thing you can do is is forgive yourself when you make a bad decision, own it, and let others see that human side because uh, you're going to make it okay for them to make mistakes. And if you're going to advance as a company, you do want people taking risks and you want them thinking outside the box. And that won't, ha- if you're really hard on yourself, they're not going to, they're going to go, wow, you're that hard on yourself. How hard will that person be on me? And so I think it is important to cut yourself some slack. So, what happy thought would you like to leave with our listeners? So this is one I, I have to admit I borrowed, and I can't even give credit because it didn't have a name with it. But I saw it a while back, and it you know it says you know you only get one one chance at this thing called life, and that your your tombstone will have a start date and an end date, and there'll be a dash between them, and that's where the story takes place. So make sure your story's interesting, impactful, and fun. That would be my advice. Yep, that's it. It's all about the dash. It's all about the dash. So, Jim, thank you so much for taking time with us today and, and sharing your story and sharing authentically with uh, with our listeners. Thank you, Rick, and, and thank you for the leadership of the Heart-Led Program. It, it was transformational. It was very timely for me in my career, so I, I really appreciate it. You're awesome. We'll, uh, we're going to get you back to talk about uh, some of the other cool things you're doing in another, another podcast. Sounds great. All right. Thanks, Jim. Bye. This is Rick Barrera, and I'd like to invite you to join our Heart of Leaders training program in Denver, Colorado. There are four sessions per year, one per quarter, and each session is three days long. Our sessions are part classroom and part experiential, meaning we give you an opportunity to practice what you're learning in an active environment. You'll be interacting with fellow explorers in an immersive experience designed to get you moving and apply what you've learned. It's educational, it's engaging, and it's fun. I guarantee you'll find the faculty and your fellow explorers are among the coolest and nicest people you'll ever meet. You'll make lifelong friends and build a world-class network to help you with whatever's next for you. You can learn more at heartofleaderspodcast.com. We believe that Heart of Leaders is a movement started by boomers, accelerated by Gen Xers, and demanded by millennials. To learn more, find us online at heartofleaderspodcast.com, where we blog, post articles, and book reviews, and respond to your questions. We invite you to join the conversation.